Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the very first 2023 edition. That's the January 9th edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here in the room. He's an economist and author, the host of the Capital Record podcast. Say that three times fast. And the founder of the eponymous investment firm, the Bonson Group. Hello, David. Hello, Will. How are you, sir? Good. One week into the new year. Um, there's a lot to get to, but I wanted to find out, how's the economy looking to you? Like, uh, just give us a quick capital record reprise, if you would. This is not on the run list. Oh, um, I, well, look, I I, um, I think that anyone saying anything different that I'm about to say it has a problem because they can make a forecast that has some speculation into it about it being better than I'm about to say or worse than I'm about to say, but... Uh, objective known analysis because obviously things can change or break one way or the other but the objective known analysis is that we have a truly ambiguous mixed bag of data that's unquestionably good and data that's unquestionably bad and those things are in a tug of war and the good is like I three and a half percent unemployment yeah right that's it three and a half percent unemployment and uh, you have still even though the numbers come down you still have a lot more open uh, job openings than you do people looking for jobs yeah and then wage growth is not only higher, uh, the highest percentage wage growth is at the lower decile and quintile of, of job of uh, wage earners, um, but it isn't inflationary. You have four and a half percent wage growth year over year. It had been 5.6% in March. And so the rate of wage growth is disinflated. And that causes a lot of people that um, believe in this sort of trade-off between wages and inflation mm -hmm. to feel better. I don't believe in that trade-off, but uh, my point is even for them, the data is not suggesting what they call a wage price spiral, where, oh my God, people start making more money, we can't have that, and then they start spending more because they have more and it pushes this upward spiral on inflation. Uh, we don't seem to be going through that at all. And so... That is on the positive side, but I don't think anyone could doubt whatsoever that ISM, both manufacturing and services. ISM are, is. Yeah, it's a, it basically is a monthly survey that kind of looks across a lot of different metrics. And um, I think it's 18 sectors that are surveyed. There's one in manufacturing, one in services, and there's one that combines and that you have contraction in mm. both those. And, and in fact, uh, services on Friday came out, the non-manufacturing survey, and had uh, contraction for the first time since 2009. And so there does seem to be things slowing down. Um, now, some will go, well, yeah, but what about housing? And that's clearly slowing down. And I say it most clearly is. But I refuse to call that a negative in the economy. I don't believe... Uh, overinflated house prices coming right. back down to planet Earth is a negative thing, and I've never believed that. It was one of the most contrarian views I had back in uh, pre-2008, and was a real vital part of me building out my business and economic worldview. So um, one could draw from everything you've just said, hey, Joe Biden, great job, Gavin Newsom, this is what we need. Why would anyone draw that? Why I didn't say anything about politics. I didn't talk about no. a politician at all. No, but of course, the person who's in the hot seat at the moment takes the credit and, well, under this administration, takes the credit and the credit. But, but they don't. They, they take the credit and the blame. If, if they take credit from their supporters and they take blame from their detractors, nobody does both. Well, they take, I, I'm just saying that the, when, I, when I watch Newsom, when I watch, and we'll talk about Gavin Newsom's inauguration. No, no, you're moment. about to say Newsom takes credit for things. Yes. But that's because people give blame for things. See, here's the thing. This is a vicious cycle. You talk about that wage price spiral. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I am on Newsom's side here because I know let's let's switch the parties around so people don't think I'm being nice to Democrats. You can't have that. <laughs> if when George Bush was in office, when Trump's in office, when Reagan's in office, when Ron DeSantis is in do, office, yeah, what, uh, DeSantis. It doesn't matter, governor, president, whatever. Um, the opposition party is going to blame that person for things that don't go well. Or, or do it in a number, either flat out say, like, you're clearly, you know, causing people to lose jobs, or they're going to say, well, you know, it's kind of more subtle. Like, I wonder if uh, there's something about this administration's policies that are starting to hurt our manufacturing sector. So then what are you supposed to do as a politician when you get good data points? You, it's a defensive mechanism. And, and, and the whole point is it's been accepted logically, universally, and unambiguously. If you praise Trump for the best economy the world's ever seen and you say Biden is destroying the economy or the Democrats with their version of the same, but crediting Biden, blaming Trump, everybody's accepted the rules. And this has been going on for a lot longer than Gavin Newsom. He was in his first rehab when this stuff started <laughs> happening, okay? So I'm sorry. No, Gavin Newsom, Ronald Reagan gave a speech once, and Larry Kyle told me he came to him, and, and we were going double-dip recession. And um, a lot of it had to do with that Congress passed his 82 tax cut but didn't let it go into effect right away. Mm -hmm. They made it wait till the next mm -hmm. year, and Volcker was tightening monetary policy, and we had a double-dip. And so the economy wasn't good. Inflation was high. Interest rates were high. Unemployment was high. And and GDP was contracting. And he goes to Cuddle and goes, what do, what do I got? I give this speech. And he goes, stock market's starting to move. And he went out and said, like, hey, the stock market's rebounding or whatever. He needed a data point to mm -hmm. say something mm -hmm. to counter another data point. And whenever when Larry first told me that a long time ago, it occurred to me, Reagan was doing what you have to do. Those are the rules of engagement. You're blamed for what's going on. Now, what if someone did this? What if we as a society, you and I doing a podcast, or people covering it, just talked about ISM manufacturing and data the way I did, where mm -hmm. I didn't even mention a politician, because it doesn't have a damn thing to do with a politician. Now, obviously, there are things that are very policy sensitive, and there is a connectivity to the Beltway and policy and economics, but that's not what we're referring to. We're not talking about the fact that when you raise taxes, there's an impact when you cut taxes over government spending does things. We're saying that that's all baked in, and we're talking about something particular of economic response. So when Newsom goes and takes credit for something that there was no real catalyst, it's just merely the suggestion that a correlation, I'm in office and XYZ good thing mm -hmm. happened, therefore mm -hmm. the causation is me being in office. Right. That is no different than people doing the opposite. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think we're stuck until we're willing mm -hmm. to either not give all the credit to our guy sometime or not give all the blame to the other guy. That's the only thing that's going to cut the cord. But this cycle of believing that all bad things are because the other guy's there, all good things, you, this is going to go on for the rest of history. That guess what? Some good things economically happen when a guy you don't like is in office, and some bad things happen when your guy's in office. You know how critical I was of Trump, and you know how critical I was particularly of Trump's response to COVID. But this idea that like Trump was causing it was so stupid. But the problem was you couldn't have it both ways because he was like, well, my ratings are so high. And, mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and there was this, uh, you, you have to, I just think, isolate where there's clear cause and effect. 
that's where I'll connect politics to economics. Other than that, you're playing into the statist vision mm-hmm. of deifying the ruling class when it comes to matters of economics, which I believe are primarily about human action. But in in fairness, I would say that deifying the state is another way of saying that where the state is encroached on all manner of the market, um, that it does bear some responsibility for downturns. I was going to point out on the show, I threw it out of the run list here fairly early on, but we're getting more warning signs from the Department of Finance, the California Department of Finance, which is saying we're really headed for a deficit. You know, and you and I have been calling this ever since Gavin Newsom declared he had a $100 billion surplus. Like, you know, look, man, it's going to turn around. It's not going to be great. And when it's not great, we've got a lot of built-in obligations in Sacramento. And what you're going to see is, Real dogfights, I think, over the state budget. You're going to see fights at the local level as local governments try to pay off their obligations, whether those are in the form of, you know, services or so they must deliver by law or, <clears throat> pardon me, or um, paying off unfunded liabilities. You know, they got to pay off the pension debt, that sort of thing. That's going to gobble up a lot of the money they have to do things locally. They're going to have to either raise taxes or cut their There's budgets. No question, but see, that's not. <sighs> Oh, that is a subset of a macroeconomic condition. Mm-hmm. The ability to can you have a good economy when a state is um, struggling to meet its pension obligations? Yes, because we've had it for most of for our mostly, lives. yeah, right, <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, I so I, I think that. Stop. <laughs> <clears throat> One sec. Will is right now taking down some water. I didn't even really tell a joke. He just kind of... You smiled in that way you do that I know. That's your tell. Something is coming. And I had water in my mouth and it instantly knew. When you do the tell, the water cycles. It's hydrological. It's almost like Pavlov's dog. It is like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, I believe that the right needs to just stop and get this message. That... The fiscal health of a given municipality is an ongoing conversation. And when things appear to be really good or when things appear to be worse than normal, it's still always bad. But that is not the same conversation. It's not the same conversation about the um, how do you primarily measure recession when you look at consumption, production, mm. inventories, and trade, which is the GDP formula. It's primarily about people being willing to spend money, people being willing to produce, mean invest into mm-hmm, new things mm-hmm. to make more money, and um, uh, transact with one another. Can GDP growth go higher when a state is screwing things up? Of course. Mm. And by the way, a state can be doing really well and improving its fiscal state even when um, the macro economy is doing poorly. So I don't disagree with you that California has a rooster coming home. Is that the expression? Yeah. That is not the same conversation about how the economy is doing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so right before last week's show, just as uh, we were warming up the mics here and we were about to get the signal from Brian to start up, you said, oh, hey, you don't have anything in here on the run list about Kevin McCarthy and the House Speaker fight. And I said, oh, yeah. Okay. Well, let me open up and throw it to you. And then I promptly skipped it and talked about uh, Megan and Harry or Harry and Megan. Which so, which is a couple problems all in one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, there was yeah. the, the missing the, yeah, I mean, there's a Let's lot of- Let's not dwell on this too much, shall but, we? But here's the thing. I will tell you this. Tell me. Uh, it's better that we didn't talk about last week because then it got, it, it, now it settled as of Friday night. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about because um, it is settled. And one of the reasons I didn't even include it in the run list last week, though it's here this week, is because 
it seems everybody's talking about it. And there's a part of me that thinks the whole controversy over what has transpired, you know, certainly what transpired last week in the House, and we don't even need to reprise all of that. I'm sure all of our listeners were following it, too. But it was the way in which the media, especially mainstream, that is lefty-oriented mainstream media, covered it, which is, oh, my gosh, this is an absolute catastrophe for the nation. And look at how the Republicans are just bungling this thing. This is terrible. It's bad. It's bad. I mean, it was, I was reading the Washington Post, the New York Times, even the Wall Street Journal had some suggestion that this is chaotic and it's very bad for democracy. What will happen to national defense and payments and services? And this is a disaster for America. And then, you know, the Democrats, A, never step in. The Democrats never stepped in to offer any kind of conciliation. Now, maybe... You know, Kevin McCarthy would have said, you know, go pound sand. I have no interest in doing a deal with you. In other words, I'm saying McCarthy could have let go of the the knuckleheads on the right, could have gone to some very moderate Dems and said, hey, let's have let's talk about rules that you might like that I can go that I can get I can be down with. Um, But that never happened, either because McCarthy didn't do it or the Dems didn't do it. I think the latter is very likely. The Dems never stepped up. I never heard Nancy Pelosi say on camera anything but this is the Republicans problem to solve and we even had like this great viral story of Katie Porter uh, showing her very ostentatiously reading a copy of the book uh, the subtle art of not giving uh, an F not giving an F word Um, and this went viral Democrats loved it like yeah she's she's using the F word number one that's the most important thing and number two we really shouldn't care this is like send the popcorn let's watch this is great theater so it's either comedy in which one of your 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 enemy's house is burning down and you just watch and cheer or it truly is a catastrophe for America it can't be both things I don't think and I was frustrated the entire week with that kind of I think internally inconsistent coverage. Like, was this thing really that imperative for the nation to worry about uh, the House Speaker debacle, or was it just kind of a comedy sideshow that was ultimately going to be resolved, and it was, and ultimately may mean very little? Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, I don't know. Just talking politically, that I would have done anything different if I were the Democrats, knowing that any um, overtures they could have made had no chance of being embraced. You know, like, do you think 20 Dems would have flipped by offering some conciliation and then that would have given McCarthy the votes? There's no way 20 would have flipped. They were very unified around Hakeem Jeffries, and it would have been suicide for Kevin McCarthy. Um, these days, I'm not even sure if that's a metaphor or not. I mean, it could it would have been his political death, poli- uh, you know, mm-hmm. because the, what's the message then? They're, they're holding up his speakership by saying he's a rhino, he's a rhino, he's a moderate. Then he gets in because of partnering with 20 Democrats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're done. Okay, forget it. And, and so I'm not sure there's much they could have done. And it was playing to their favor. To watch the sort of implosion. Now, here's the, the I, I but 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 the thing where I think I agree with you completely about the media's coverage was so silly. There was an MSNBC guy who was interviewing a congressional woman, a Democrat, and saying like, "Isn't it true that this is really just like the January sixth insurrection?" Yes, yeah. And she goes, "I think you're I think you're going a little far." Oh there. wow! Like she pushed back, but it, but you know that level of of talk like that there were social security checks being held up while the they right, were fighting right. this. Is all totally stupid. Now, do I think this was a great moment for the uh, Republicans? No, I do not. Um, 
this is the part, though, like almost everything else we talk about, including the conversation we just had about the economy a moment ago. The reason why any real handicapping of what happened, analysis of what happened, is almost impossible, other than a few people like some of the folks at National Review or what Jonah Goldberg did at Dispatch, and hopefully you and I are constantly able to do, I know we strive to, is it requires some nuance. It is not true there were 20 people holding up McCarthy that were one and the same. And that inability to distinguish, do I think that the Lauren Brobert and Matt Gates wing are as much of a jackass as a person could be? I do. Do I have anything good to say about what happened from them and their motives, their tactics, the whole thing? I don't. It was real bad. But see, then you go, you know what? Chip Roy is a guy of good faith. He's an honest broker. And uh, he wasn't looking to just get a book deal and an interview and just be outrageous and be a, 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 a knucklehead. And did he get some better rules passed and some better accountability and per- potentially put some things in that are going to be useful in the way the Republicans govern? I think he did. And I don't think it would have happened without the events last week. So that's the part I'm getting to, Will, is that there's nuance. I don't think very highly of Kevin McCarthy, but there are some who don't think highly of him because they think he was not MAGA enough, okay? Then there's people like me, Eric Erickson's in this camp, that think he, I know Jonah would agree, be clowned himself Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. after January 6th Mm -hmm, with Trump. mm -hmm. And so I think that there's different reasons people distrust and dislike him, but if I were an elected congressman, imagine that joke of an idea, (laughs) um, would I have voted for him? Here is my answer. If I didn't have anybody else, I would. Mm -hmm. That's the number one thing that people on the right are going to lose so many elections that they don't understand. This idea of our entire platform, our brand, is the art of being outrageous, of being mad, of being pissed, of uh, owning the libs and all of these things and not having any technique or any process or any effectiveness of getting anything done, any planning, any strategy. I'm sorry, I'm unimpressed. Read some Burke and learn how to get something done. This notion that you got elected to be outrageous, Mm -hmm. I'm tired of it. But see, I don't think that's what Chip Roy was doing. But I do think it's what Matt Gaetz's entire role in Congress is, other than he also got to meet some some really young pages and stuff. I mean, he, <laughs> so there's other things there too. But at the end of the day, did the left was wrong. Democracy was not undermined. The many on the right were wrong. We're still having these stupid squabbles over Trump. This was an interesting MAGA on MAGA violence. Yeah, really No was. pun intended. Uh, seeing like Marjorie Taylor Greene yelling at Gates, you know, and they're both on the side of who, you know, I, the, and where Trump fit in. But um, what we knew, this entire thing, let's just end this discussion. The whole thing is about the margin in the House. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's exactly right. Had we won 25 to 35 seats, which was the consensus view, none of this would matter. That's right. And so the reason we didn't is because of MAGA, Trump, bad candidates, and now that it caused this whole tension last week. Well, let me stay on it just for a moment, because you sent me this, I think, fascinating article by a guy named Jonathan Blitzer, no relation apparently to, to uh, Wolf. To Wolf? Yeah. Um, it was in the New Yorker magazine, and it came out uh, just before, uh, just after Christmas, actually, December 26th. And um, it's uh, the headline is, What Kevin McCarthy Will Do to Gain Power. And it was really kind of prescient, you know, that he was going to have to do battle with the Trumpists. 
But the most interesting part of it was just who is Kevin McCarthy? And again, for that few, that small number of people who don't live in California or aren't paying real close attention to this stuff, the reason we're talking about this at all is because Kevin McCarthy is from Bakersfield, California. And uh, that is a particularly conservative part of the state. It is, you know, people compare Bakersfield, that is Kern County, to, to Texas. You know, it's, it, is, um, it is dry, it is dusty, it is, in other places, it is farmland that is quite rich, it's a big agricultural area. Oil drilling is one of the, ma- had been one of the major industries there. Uh, it is suffering under the hammer blows of uh, the climate change activists in the, in the state legislature and the governor's office. So... Uh, the, you know, this is a pre- really interesting place, and I wonder what what value do you think there is to California, if any? What's what's California's stake in Kevin McCarthy as speaker? Does it do anything for California? I'm not I'm not even thinking necessarily of the kind of transactional stuff of having a speaker from California wins California good stuff, but from from D.C. But what's what would you say? Like, what do we care that this House Not Speaker? Really. Yeah, that's kind of what I think. I think that the left cared a little more. I think there was something a little bit more meaningful about the prior Speaker of the House being from California and that she was a Silicon Valley guy. I think her husband was a hell of a day trader, um, you know, stock trader and stuff. And, uh, you know, there. He was kind of from a more um, known, a nationally known liberal enclave. And so Nancy had been a very longtime congresswoman in San Francisco. But I don't think that um, people thought about John Boehner as like, this is really good for Ohio. I'm not even sure most people know John Boehner was a congressman Mm -hmm. in Ohio. Mm -hmm. Paul Ryan, probably more people know about Wisconsin, but that might have to do with his... His stint as the VP candidate mm-hmm. under Romney's run in 2012. And head of the party briefly, right? What's that? Was he not head of the party briefly? No, but, but Ryan Priebus was. There we go. And, and he's from Wisconsin yeah, as well. That's it. But yeah, I just don't... I think if you were to go back... I mean, God, where was Tip O'Neill from? Was he Massachusetts? Tip O'Neill is Massachusetts, I think. I think, I think so. Good Lord. Denny Hastert, who I think was Illinois... Uh, and a playground uh, <laughs> yeah really bus driver I'm not sure um, <laughs> I feel really embarrassed not to know that but to know the joke I think it's funny that no one I don't know how many people listen to get the joke okay we gotta move on yeah I don't think people let's care just about say he's in prison the, the speaker of the house becomes a national figure very quickly and they become a beltway figure very quickly and I think Kevin McCarthy did that a long time ago. Yeah. And I think Kern County views Kevin McCarthy as one of their own about as much as we view the Kardashians as one of our own. Yeah. I, I did learn a couple of things here that uh, when Kevin, here's a quote from the story, when Kevin Spacey was preparing for the role of Frank Underwood, the Machiavellian schemer on the Netflix show House of Cards, he shadowed McCarthy. McCarthy joked that he agreed to do it after learning that Underwood would be a Democrat. Um, what comes out of the story, out of the profile, is that Kevin McCarthy he is whomever you need him to be in the moment that he is that principle is not his brand that his brand is like you know f- lick your finger put it up in the wind and see where things are going and his execrable behavior after Jan- on January 6th and after especially after well on January 6th I thought he was acting fine was, yes I mean it, but that's what sets up this weird thing is that you know there's a great couple of bits in here where they you know it's he, not that weird uh, he just just two days later three days later he found out it wasn't fatal for Trump and decided to reverse course. That's right. It's pretty and, simple, actually. Yeah, and you've got all kinds of documentation in this very good profile, which we'll put in the show notes, but uh, that, you know, he was terrified. He was like this close to getting his, his yeah, butt kicked, yeah. and he was terrified and begging Trump to intervene, 
And uh, then a couple of days later, it's like, nah, this was nothing. He votes against the impeachment, starts to claim the election was stolen. I mean, he just he he sowed the seeds of his own trauma here later because he didn't have principle. But I guess what I'm asking for is, you know, somebody um, in the speaker's role. I don't know that anybody in the speaker's role has to have principle. I think their job really is to try to figure out how to keep all the cats herded and moving in the same direction. But anyway. All right. Um, Gavin Newsom. Uh, launched his second in uh, his second term. His inauguration was January sixth, uh, and that was not uh, by total coincidence that he then on that day decided that he was going to add a march, an anti-insurrectionist, anti-MAGA, anti-right wing march to the Capitol where he would be inaugurated. And um, there were just a couple of really interesting features about the inauguration itself and this march. Number one in the march, I think it's important to point out that uh, reporters were barred from participating. Now, this is on a public street. I don't know if you followed this part of the story, Mm but um, no media were allowed to participate in the march, um, which is a kind of an interesting thing. You're you're there marching for freedom, you know, all the rights we have as Americans. And then among the things you do is exact you you violate the First Amendment. Now, you could argue this was a I don't know. I suppose you could argue that his march was more party than uh, government and therefore he's allowed to do whatever the heck he wants. But because he got a parade permit, I guess. But even a parade permit, I would think that. On a street, how do you actually uh, delimit the the participation of the press? Um, and marching with him was uh, one Dolores Huerta, the uh, you know one of the the founders of the United Farm Workers with Cesar Chavez. Um, just a, a really terrible human being. I, I'm I'm just going to say that bluntly. This person is a thug. She is a very very bad person. Well, she's got to be 200 years old. She's I think well into her 80s, if not you know hitting 90 at this point. But she um, th- this is a person who you know whatever her achievements back in the day to help farm workers who you know truly are in, in you know doing some of God's work there in the fields and. You know, we, we, I don't know about you, David. I actually picked strawberries for a story I was working on once. That is, that, you know, that is literally all, almost literally backbreaking work. Uh, it was very hot. Uh, there was nowhere to go to the bathroom. I'd snuck onto the spot with the help of some farm workers and uh, did this, did this bit. But long story short, is there any video? No. And, and, and here's this I never wrote the story because I let somebody else write it on the staff. Um, but it, it's, it's difficult work. And, But my my point is that, you know, this is a person who has constantly done everything she does, she says, is for the farm workers and ends up screwing them because it is really ultimately about the UFW. Uh, I'll give you an example and then we'll come back to Newsom here. Um, here, There's a headline in here, David. You'll see the story. Overtime law was supposed to help these California workers. Many make less money now. Huge shock. Um, under Jerry Brown, there's a, uh, a bill, a 2016 California law requiring that California's agricultural workers get overtime, uh, and it continues to roll out. Here's a story from the SAC B, uh, continues to roll out, and farm workers and their employers alike say the policy is costing them money. So what happened when uh, farm workers were, were allowed to have access to more overtime pay? Uh, and we're talking here about like an hour a day during an hour extra per workday during peak harvest season. They were being paid for it, and it really helped those people sort of bridge the gap between. They reduced hours. They reduced hours. They, yeah, who yeah. could have, who could have seen it coming? What a shock! Right? Yeah. Here's the, and I think this is where you know you get a mainstream reporter. I don't know anything about this person's politics, but she she has it exactly right. Third paragraph. Melissa Montalvo of the Sacramento Bee. Yes. 
is Sacramento be in your mind center right, center left? Uh, center left, but but I would say one of the best papers in the state. Uh, they do a very good job of covering labor. Aren't there only three papers in the state now? The yeah, just about. LA Times and the... San Diego Union-Tribune, the Register. Yeah. The Register Union. is still around. Yeah. Well, the Chronicle? Chronicle's here, but I don't really consider that a newspaper. Really? Is that bad? It's just terrible. I mean, really. I could just... I could go on, but... Does Fresno have a good newspaper? The Fresno Bee, which is part of the Mercury News. Do you know that because of this podcast that I have paid subscriptions to every paper we just said? Ah, oh, that's so sweet. I do. Yeah, and the Fresno Bee is related to the Sacramento Bee. So, um... Oh, it's uh, not a coincidence. The last name... They're married. They're married. The they're the Bee family. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, here's the, the third graph of her story, uh, Ms. Montalvo's. Farm workers say since the new law passed, they're largely not being paid overtime in their hours and take-home pay have redu- been reduced as a result they're not being paid overtime though because they're not doing overtime we have simply seen farm worker farmers take land out of production this hurts consumers because it limits supply and then the it hurts the farm workers because they're not getting that that work that extra hour of work per day that might mean something one of the guys that she interviews here says let me see like many farm worker stories shared with the b mendoza this is a, a farm worker 34 currently works for a labor contractor pruning tree fruit trees like peaches and nectarines blah 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 he said over the past two years his weekly take-home pay dropped from one thousand dollars per week to around 600 because his hours were slashed from 60 to 40 hours per week so, you know, we, we say this all the time on the show, and I want to thank the listener who knows who he is, who, who urged me to take on this term, unintended but utterly predictable. Unintended consequences, utterly predictable. Um, so it makes you wonder how much of these consequences are unintended. It's like they know they're doing it, and they intend it, but there's a better win for the brand to say, hey, look what we did. Imagine that in the fundraising campaign for UFW. They go around to a bunch of rich folks up in the Bay Area or down in West L.A., and they say, hey, look what we did. We got overtime. We fought. We won. And then they're going to bury the story here. And And the response from the UFW is... Not a, it's just not a surprise. Um, one of the, the communications director says, uh, these are just growing pains. They're part of a movement toward a more just agricultural economy where farm workers have the same rights as other workers. Quote, the amount of workers that are getting their hours cut speaks to the reality that there was a ton of un- unpaid overtime. Yeah, so do you want, and it wasn't unpaid overtime. It was overtime that wasn't paid time and a half. So, you know, first careful on the messaging there and second they didn't have overtime because your bill made it inexpedient for employers to continue allowing people to get to to do overtime so um it is absolutely disastrous and this is the kind of the you know the it's it's a really fair story it's a very good story um so the you know these workers already poor if you you know already poor in terms perhaps of other californians but making a thousand dollars a week if you're a person whose family just got here from mexico might sound pretty good which is why you're doing the work which is why you're here in the first place it's better than what you had before this is rarely taken into account Um, so these already poor people got poorer and somehow in the minds of the ufw this is good I think that the right solution to that debate about when it's unintended but predictable, and then you say it makes you wonder how much it really was unintended, is to resist the temptation and to follow Thomas Sowell's mantra, which is to not care. That if we are consistent, in other words, if it was, if the intentions were good and policy was bad, that does not vindicate the policy. Therefore, if the intentions were bad and the policy is bad, 
we we we're just going to sit here and call balls and strikes right. on policy, and allow us to get, have the same consistent yardstick. And um, also, it avoids the need to re- read someone's heart. Read. Yeah, I was going to say. So you're saying it's. Almost I think like- most bad policy is well intentioned, and I think some is not. But I th- also think there's a little middle camp of um, apathy. Yeah. Like I don't like I don't think that the teachers union says we want to screw this or this, but we just they just don't care. Right. It's not on our radar. Right. Like we're they're really focused and ambitious people, mm-hmm. and they're going to get something done. They need to get done, and and it isn't like they're going. You know, by the way, the trade off is going to be it's going to do this. I don't think UFW. I don't think they're sitting there going. You know, it's going to end up resulting in less hours and actually bring down quality of living for some of these workers. I think they were saying don't don't. Don't give me this economic stuff. We're going to go get a power grab right. here and, and close the deal. But your point is is a really good one, and I've used it with regard to hate crimes in California. You know, if somebody comes and murders me, I don't really care if they did it because I was, you know, white or gay or straight or black or anything else. They killed me. I think murder is a hate crime itself. We don't need additional motives, I would say. Well, and now you are, are you a, one of the <clears throat> Catholics who's against death penalty? Uh you know what? I'm really on the bubble on this one. I, every day that I, you know, read the papers, I read. Of I can some, I can tell you about some crimes that'll make you for the death penalty. Really. Yeah, I, I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I read some but of this. But Bush stuff. and Gore debated this. Do you remember this? Bush and Gore I running for president. I remember Michael Dukakis. I'll tell you that. And so. and there was a real nasty thing, and he had and and Bush had either vetoed hate crime legislation or had some sort of opposition. I don't remember the details, but it was a wonderful moment in the debate for Bush. And um, I don't know how coached or prepped he was for it but it was the right thoughtful and ideological answer is gore was saying oh you went against this hate crime thing and what are we doing here and and bush said excuse me i I passed the bill to execute the guy what do you want me to do more than kill the guy right like i was willing to execute him yes and and yet you want us to state that so you're I'm for hate crime and against death penalty yeah, yeah, yeah. or I'm against hate crime and for death penalty who's tougher on crime right, genius right I mean dear lord but but your point was you can't measure the intent and you're not even supposed to measure intent the law is supposed to be a little bit more objective than that say oh what happened no I killed the guy okay but, did but you hate do, him was it because he was gay was it because yeah. he was uh, a race or this but or we that? do this to some extent in crime when we talk about uh, you know manslaughter versus murder no right? no but that has to do with accidental right and whether it was intentional and, and premeditation yes. it has but, nothing to a motive but it does. No, it does right? not. Because if I intend to go out and murder, no, but a as person, a matter of law, it doesn't. I, I agree with you, and I'm saying that we do take intention into account when we look at murder versus intention, not motive. Uh, okay. If you intend to kill someone, I in, t- in other words, if I intend to kill you because I think that your glasses are ugly. Now I hurt my feelings. And if I intend to kill you because I want to steal from you. Mm-hmm. Those are two things that are both the same quality of murder, intentionally mm-hmm. speaking. If I do not intend to kill you, but I want to take your wallet and I'm going to hit you and then you die, the law views that as different because I mm-hmm. didn't intend to kill you, but mm-hmm. there was a negligible homicide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That So you're, you're, con- you're confusing two categories. The law does not look at motive until hate crime legislation things came up. Then all of a sudden, why did it do it? Okay. If I say I hate that guy and I purposely plan to premeditate and murder him, mm-hmm. you go, why'd you hate him? Go, I hated him because he had an affair with my wife. Right. And they go, okay, that's that's not too that's that's not that bad. What what about this other guy? Oh, I hated that guy because I don't like black people. They go, mm-hmm. okay, well you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Now it's absurd. 
both things are premeditated murder. I agree. And yet the law with hate crime legislation would have me believe that hating someone because of uh, X versus hating someone because of Y are two different things. It's all, if you commit murder, it's hate. Right. You know who's on my side on this one? Jesus. Of Nazareth. Yeah. Where he said, actually, it's in your heart to begin with. Right. So the the action stems out of the, the heart sin, and we only punish the crime. We don't punish the sin, right? That that, that I get that distinction. But my point is that the intentions in economic policy, the intentions in criminal law, we there are parts of uh, what we're dealing with here on Earth that we're supposed to only be dealing with the ac- actions, the activities. This pre- the UFW people, uh, they're pretty corrupt. They're pretty corrupt. But I don't think they want to screw their people. I think they don't care, and there's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, manslaughter, I, not murder. You're yeah, saying that, it's an apples to oranges analogy. No, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying, okay, so if they don't intend to hurt their people, then you know, you're know you more forgiving of that, I suppose. Or, I, But I think your, your earlier point about Thomas Sowell was the remarkable one. No, that because is I that, think it's murder where the, if you know that there is a risk and do it anyways, then you have, right? Uh, like in other words, the, the whole analogy thing is not, is not um, buttoned up enough. But, but my, what I would say is, I am as disdainful of a policy that was intended to be good and does bad as I am of a policy that was um, intended to be bad and was bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's all the same thing on the other side. And and we're not talking about how we're going to criminally prosecute someone. We're talking about how we're going to adjudicate a policy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My adjudication of the policy is no different. Got it. And I like the Thomas Sowell idea. I'm just get back to brass tacks here and say that you know the idea that you. So don't it's interesting. Really- you like it when it's Thomas Sowell, but not when it's me. So I feel like there's a race motive going on. There. <laughs> No, I like Thomas Sowell because you actually introduced me to him at Acton. Um, okay, so getting back to Gavin Newsom. So he has this big, long march. He excludes the press. I okay. do think it's... I love when we get out of order on the links. I'm yeah. closing the second link. So back to the first. No, yeah. it's helpful because I'm so, so here's, engaged. Here's what's going on with Newsom. This is also so funny. He did not complete the march. I, I think this is sort of interesting that he only walks part of the way with all these people... Uh, which sort of, I think, is poetic. There's something there about the fact that Newsom has this big march during which he ex- intends to specifically call out the right and to link anybody who disagrees with him to January 6th, right? This occurs on January 6th. He is memorializing the events of January 6th when he does it. His talk will be about red states and how evil they are, particularly without naming him Ron DeSantis. Um, this whole thing was so highly political. But notice the poetry of a guy who starts a march with all these people who are part of his big coalition but drops out partway through to climb into a limo to be ushered directly to the Capitol ahead of the crowd so that he could get prepped and, I don't know, you know, makeup or whatever. Um, it just struck me as sort of like if I were writing a story about this event, that's where I'd start, that Gavin Newsom couldn't complete the long march. Um, there's something there. Uh, anyway, the, the the interesting part of you know his, his spiel, as I say, is that he's really got, he uses his whole inaugural speech to just talk about, again, how bad red state governors are and how great California is. And I, and I, you know, you can't disagree with some of his rhetoric. Like, I'll just, let me just quote this. If you heard this from a Republican, you'd be, I think, you'd be totally great with it, right? More than any people in any place, California has bridged the historical expanse between freedom for some and freedom for all. 
Uh, Freedom is our essence, our brand name, the abiding idea that right here, anyone from anywhere can accomplish anything. That could be said of America, and you'd be so delighted. But I am so infuriated, I suppose. I mean, like, it really does make me angry to know that a guy who has done so much, representing a party that has done so much to limit freedom, is talking about freedom as his brand, right? It is a it is the theft of the American ideal, I think. And it is a misrepresentation. I I'm not suggesting that somehow my outrage is, you know, going to change anything or that I sh- that I should I shouldn't be shocked, you might say. Like this is just what politics is all about. No, 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 no. We carry the flag, not you, right? Um, so he's he begins this march. Uh, Rob Bonta's there, the attorney general's with him, trade union workers, civil rights activist Dolores Huerta, and other notables to walk the one mile down the Capitol Mall toward the State House, intended as a counterpart to the 2021 attack on the nation's capital. Though Newsom reportedly did not complete the full march and took a waiting car to the final inauguration site, etc. He touted some of his biggest accomplishments. Now, remember, we're talking about freedom, like enshrining reproductive rights in the state's constitution. You know, there's always a trade-off, right? Everything's a trade-off. So let's talk about the rights of abortion. You and I have talked about that a long time, but there's somebody else in that equation, a little bit like I've told that joke before on this show, so I won't bore you too much, but the, uh, what is it, the the pig and the chicken are going to open up a diner, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that one. I won't go on. Um, and he's setting ambitious climate goals. The climate goals that the president, I'm sorry, that the governor has helped establish have tremendous costs for lots of people. Assembly Bill 5, which has obliterated the trucking industry, the independent trucking industry in California, crushes business. It is like Stalin's 1929 de of farming in the, in the Soviet Union. Um, he is crushing the businesses of 70,000 independent contractors and declaring that freedom. Right. It's, it's very Orwellian, this whole thing I'm saying. And you and I are not opposed to critiquing our side when they do stupid stuff. In fact, we kind of delight in it um, by calling people out. We have to clean up our side of the street. But uh, but I really am just, you know, I, I wish the media would do a better job. I guess that's our job here, right? We're, we're kind of the media in some small way to just notice the irony of a guy who talks so much about freedom. They make it harder to vote and easier to buy illegal guns, he says. Well, you know. Um, Second Amendment, because buying illegal guns is going to go on whether you have, whether you end the Second Amendment and have gun laws. California proves that. They silence speech. Well, so too does our government. Um, specifically in, in Senate Bill 866, the government is, uh, is prohibited. No government official can talk to any worker in government about his or her right to join a union or stay out of a union. You can't do it. Free speech violation right there. Senate Bill 866 signed by Gavin New- I was signed by Jerry Brown rather in 2018. They fire teachers. I don't know even what that means. Um, there are some bad teachers. Is he saying that there are no bad teachers and that if we find a bad teacher, we shouldn't find? I don't know what he's talking about. Kidnap migrants, he says. Kidnapping migrants. Um, I would argue that the guy who says, welcome to our border, we'll give you free stuff, come on in, and then subjects the people who cross through Central America and Mexico to coyotes who literally kidnap, rape, and murder people, that's, that's more the dangerous party. You, you get where I'm going with this. And you look, you know, bemused like you're going to let me do it and I'll just stop. No, I, I you know I agree with you. I I look well this stuff is so hard for me because I don't want to be a broken record. I don't want to bug people. And if I were a listener as conservative like I am, I'd be bugged by some of my response because 
it isn't um, appropriate for me to week in and week out not be outraged by things that are outrageous just simply because I expect them. Yeah. And yet, it, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm shocked by any of it. No. And I think a lot of what we say about Gavin Newsom on this podcast is just the most traditional boilerplate politician behavior ever. And what bugs people is that the guy's freaking good at it. He's really good at being a politician. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't even consider this good. I guess that's my trauma, right? I consider this just so blatantly obvious, um, like my kid holding the You mean uh, that it's a hypocritical and self-serving and crass? Yeah, that it's because obvious. Because that's what I just said. Right. No, good at being a politician. I understand, but you said that he's good at that. At and, being a politician. And I don't regard that as... No, I, I don't regard that as being You think good it's helpful for him to, of A, pass that abhorrent abortion bill, and B, brag about it? Because yeah. it is. Yeah. And you know, do you think things- he has set himself up as a guy not running for president who's running for president? Yes. He's pretty good at it. That's hard to do. Yeah. Um, but I also, you know, one of the things I appreciate about uh, hanging this out with you. This dude would wipe the floor with Donald Trump right now. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No question. DeSantis in him in a brawl? I'm, I'm DeSantis. I think so, too. But see, DeSant- what did I just say Gavin's done so well? I said he's running for president by, while saying not running for president. Right. What's DeSantis apparently kind of doing? The same thing. I would like to hope so. Yeah. So they're both smart. They're both... But, but I don't want you or let alone listeners to believe that I'm saying it's admirable or acceptable... But my point is, is that he has developed a better political instinct than he had a number of years ago. This thing about the $24 billion budget deficit. See, I don't think that their analysts believe that. I think he's going to come out and say it isn't true and it will not be 24. And it will be a number way higher than it should be or that any of us should accept. And it will be a number that's way higher than is is decent. But by leaking this really high number, they're going to come in and say, whew, we really got that a lot better Mm -hmm. than expected. I think they do things like that Mm -hmm. because they're devious people. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sitting around going, oh, what are you going to do? We, I would like us to learn from the mistakes of the recall mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because he is a more potent force because of that. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you and I to keep calling him out where he's wrong. So I guess, you know, one of the things that I got to say to you, look me in the eyeballs, I love the fact that when I spend time with you, I laugh about this stuff with you because that is, I think, a legitimate response to a lot of this. Like, you know, it's, it's Ronald Reagan used to say, there you go again. Mm-hmm. It is like that. It's just, you know, this guy will keep just doing this stuff. And as you're saying, it, our job is to play more umpire than outraged advocate. Um, it's outrageous. I'm probably more numb than I should be. But it's also true that some people that are more outraged than I am, they don't have anything else to do about it either. He's he's good at it. The question I would suggest is whether or not, if one wants to end the political career of Gavin Newsom, is it to fight him on policies that whether you and I like it or not are popular in California that he promotes? Or is it to point out that he is yet another coastal elite lefty who is not in tune with the rest of the country? I don't think there's anything you can do right now to tear down Gavin Newsom in California unless he creates a full-blown budget crisis and people stop having services. But the chicken little thing doesn't really work very well either. Mm -hmm. We've been Mm -hmm. trying that for years and Mm -hmm. it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I think that on a national scale, a lot of what he's selling is unsellable. Mm -hmm. And I'm all for playing into that. 
but going on the Golden Gate Bridge and marching and talking about how you got reproductive rights and you're doing the, the climate and all the things, he just sounds like a little wokey wokester, and then <laughs> he can and then he can immediately turn it back on the other way when he wants. He he's become a more gifted politician. Yeah, before our eyes. Yep. Jerry Brown was not a gifted politician, but Jerry Brown had the mistake of being somewhat authentic sometimes. Mm-hmm. Our laugher was telling me last week it's going to be on our Capitol Record podcast a week from this week that mm-hmm. you and I are talking about. We already taped it, but it's going to air next week. But he was telling me how, and I knew this, but I'd forgotten. It wasn't just that Jerry laid down on Prop 13. He didn't campaign against it. Mm-hmm. Jerry Brown had the numbers get released to everyone so they would know what their property taxes were going to be apart from Prop 13 because mm-hmm. the property value is increasing and then what they would be with Prop 13. He, so that's like the most savvy, ideological, principle-based way to go support something you knew deserved supporting that you couldn't quite support. Mm-hmm. And that didn't make him a lot of friends with, right. the, with the left. Um, well, but, similarly, he was—he has been very good in saying the right things about the budget, about debt, about bond debt, about unfunded liabilities. Jerry Brown, yeah, yeah, and, and about about rainy day. Right. Yes, we yeah. got to have more money in the rainy day fund, and you know, by God, it's you know, this is the mess out there. And he called it the the wall of debt, yeah. and he would constantly use that phrase when he was talking to the state legislators, try to tell them, like, you know, guys, please re- rein it in. Um, hey, so. We're recording on January 9th. Last uh, last week on Wednesday, January the third, I think that was. If I'm not got my dates straight here, uh, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh uh, left Washington D.C., arrived at the Port of Los Angeles, and met there with uh, a couple of truckers, representatives of four trucking companies, Teamsters Union officials and port officials in L.A. to talk about how great Assembly Bill 5 has been for the trucking industry. Mm. So we've talked a lot about this. You know, I just mentioned a moment ago that AB 5 wipes out the independent businesses of uh, 70,000 Californians like Stalin did the kulaks. Um, More will be revealed. But, uh, you know, I've talked to a trucker, for instance, a guy named Tom Odom, who was in a story I wrote for National Review. I don't know if I, I think I put that in the show notes. It was about California destroying trucking. And Tom Odom's a guy who was raised in East L.A. in the 70s. He's, He's somewhere between your age and mine. And East L.A. is a tough part of town. He, you know, barely, by his own account, barely made it through high school, went into the Army, came back at age 21, didn't know really what to do with his life, fell into trucking, and within a few years was able to scrape together the cash to buy a rig and then built his own trucking business. Just a little firm, a couple of trucks based in Madera, California, in the Central Valley. And uh, under AB5, he is packing up his home in Madera, selling it and moving to Texas, where he can actually continue his independent trucking business. Or so one might think that, you know, that could be the end of the story. Well, you just have to leave California and California will, you know, collapse into the ocean and leave mythical Arizona Bay. But he he leaves and now Marty Walsh comes to LA and says Assembly Bill 5 is so awesome that it is incorporated. It is the DNA basically of President Joe Biden's PRO Act. Now, for those who weren't following the game at home, the PRO Act is a Trump-era House Democrats initiative that was modeled after Assembly Bill 5. And again, Assembly Bill 5 was aimed at, let's just reprise for a moment, signed into law in 2019 by Gavin Newsom, uh, authored by Lorena Gonzalez, a Teamsters Union official who wanted to make sure that everybody who worked anywhere in California worked for a unionized corporation. The way she was going to do that was by shutting down the independent contracting business, and she was particularly aiming, again, 
again at Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, right? She was aiming at the gig economy primarily, but it really did rewrite the rules for who can be a freelancer in California. Whether you're a translator, a newspaper reporter as a freelancer, a photographer, a graphic designer, translate, you name it. If you were an independent contractor who took on myriad clients under California law, you're going to have a very tough time staying independent. You're going to have to go to work for a corporation. So this immediately wipes out a lot of competition. We've talked about Gabriel Colco before. Uh, this wipes out a load of the cor- of the competition for major corporations who are unionized already. These are part. These guys are part of the incumbent system. These trucking companies that are already unionized. So Walsh shows up at the port and says, "Look, it's great. If you don't believe me, talk to these two truckers. Both of whom say, "Gosh, I really hated how difficult it was being an independent trucker, and now I have this great union job where I'm told what to do and where to show up, and I really like it." Um, boy, independent contracting was terrible for for me and for all truckers. And then he goes to the representatives of the trucking firms who say, oh, this just created so much chaos having independent trucking because, you know, it's just terrible, just chaotic. What they really meant was we got 70,000 small business people out there who are willing to price things and move things very, very quickly, and it makes it hard for a large bureaucratic union organization to respond to. So... Walsh is saying, this idea is so great, we're going to impose it nationwide. We don't care where you live, Texas, Tennessee, Florida, Michigan, we're bringing this to you via the federal government if we can just get the bill moved past the Senate, right? So the, the bill stalled out in the Senate while Joe Biden was you know, banging on them last summer and telling them, pass this bill. Thankfully, the Senate was still in the hands of Mitch McConnell, and uh, he pushed back, and this bill never even really got much of a hearing in the Senate. And I don't, I think now, David, that this, you know, the House is marginally in Republican control, the, the Senate remains a Senate. Um, I don't think this bill goes anywhere, but it's just the ostentatiousness of a D.C. guy saying, here's a California bill that has benefited everyone. It's a little bit like Gavin Newsom saying, I bring freedom, that he wants to bring to the rest of the country a bill that has been carried out here to tremendous destruction and make it go nationwide. Agree 100%. Uh, Let's see. Um, Speaking of truckers, uh, one last story here about them, and then I promise not to talk about truckers until next week. I I just got a thing for them right now. Um, Here's the headline. California's ban on big rigs and buses made before 2010 goes into effect in January. This is a story on December 29th by Ashley Zavala. Uh, at KCRA, I th- this woman always is. Did you add a bunch of stories? Did I add this one? I'm sorry, buddy. Here you go. Um, I. I- thought I put it in your list and added it, but uh, it's th- here's the story. Uh, in 2010, the California un- uh, initiated a new regulation that said no trucks, no big rigs can be driven, no buses, in fact, or big rigs, but this is primarily about trucking, can be driven, if, if they are produced before 2010, they cannot be on the roads after January 1st, 2023. So this eliminates trucks which drivers might have purchased in, say, 2009, because they are allegedly such promiscuous producers of particulate matter. Pardon the alliteration there. Um, So you have all these people who invested in a truck in 2009. That truck is now not worth anything in California because you can't drive it. So now you got to sell it out on the market. You got to buy a new new rig costing you $150 to $250,000, maybe more. Um, unless you buy used, it's going to be the lower end. But the used market is not big enough to cover all the drivers who might want to sell their old rigs, their pre-2010 rigs, and buy a new one. The national market in used rigs is too small. So you're forced then as a... As a Out of curiosity, 
is the state of California's position that pre-2010 trucks are unsafe for California roads but are safe? Climate. Yeah, but is the climate different next door? No. No. This no had, but, so you, I'm, you I'm raise not, an important I'm not point. Being, I'm not being funny. I'm not, no, making, a, I'm not making a point. I think you I are. I probably am going to make an important point, but Go I'm ahead. not yet. I will so far, up. I'm doing fact-finding <laughs> because I do not know the answer to how they think about Go it. Go ahead. Do they have a prima facie reason to believe that these trucks get destroyed, or do they understand they get sold in the secondary market and used in another state that shares the same ozone layer that California has? I mean, it's a serious, yes. good faith question because maybe their thought is this will incentivize people to destroy the trucks. Yeah, that's not happening. What's happening, of course, is that these people are taking the trucks out of state, and because there's now a and a, selling them to users there, and then yes. having to replace here to meet the regulatory requirement. Correct. So. In that sense, they, California doesn't actually believe that this is helpful for the environment. That's correct. They, they can't. I mean, I suppose you could delude yourself. This gets back to that whole problem of intention and unpredictable, unpredi- unintended or, or in fairness, they could erroneously believe that if we do this, we could be a city on a hill forcing... Brian, you hearing that? Oh. We, we were getting uh, some trucks coming through, and they yeah. said those are pre-2010. You can tell because they're you, loud. We should pretend that that was a sound effect we our producers <laughs> added to uh, add the drama of Just the moment. Just go with it. I like it. Maybe they have a city on a hill thinking that like we will be a model that then we'll get Nevada and then Arizona and eventually- That is what they think. Alabama yes. will ban these trucks. Yes. All of our climate work is performative, and you know this because you read the press releases by either the agencies, the government, or the, you know, the, the legislator who says, you know, we're gonna, we are the model. It, it is what you know, I quoted earlier, that California is the model. We are the world leader. We, everybody looks to us for leadership. We are the leaders. We are the leaders. We are a government in exile you know, from Washington. So, yeah, this, this bill- uh, in tw- 2010, this this new regulation just basically wipes out all these people. They are now compelled to sell their markets in a in an environment where 200,000 people are still driving pre 2010 big rigs in California. What are they to do? Uh, you know, again, the national market of the national supply of used big rigs is not sufficient to replace all those all those trucks. So these people are going to be confronted with: I leave the state. I sell my truck and do my best to scrape together a impoverishing debt on a new rig that is post 2010, you know, is, is brand new, in fact, because there's not enough used trucks to go around. So um, anyway, this is just like, you know, the, the, we're in the middle of a supply chain crisis, we're told. We're, we're trying to get the, you know, Pete Buttigieg is running around telling everybody who will listen that he's the transportation expert and he's got it all under control. But California is ignoring all that and just dismantling our own supply chain. So um, just a, a bit there. Hey, I wanted to turn real quickly to a couple of uh, other stories here and then we'll uh, we'll We'll, we'll take off. But um, our friend Kyle De- Carl DeMaio in San Diego did a great investigative piece on um, how local governments in San Diego County are using taxpayer dollars to give out as grants to left-wing organizations who are explicitly political in their purpose. The headline is, Investigation Reveals Millions in Taxpayer Funds Diverted to Left-Wing Groups. Uh, here's a, a paragraph from the story. The investigation details numerous taxpayer-funded contracts and grants directed to the left-wing groups by politicians that investigators concluded were, quote, padded or even directly subsidized political activities. The investigation even uncovered coordination between government staff and a left-wing group in advancing proposed redistricting maps that would benefit those same politicians. Um, I'll put the story in the show notes, David. It's just a really good piece of investigative reporting 
by uh, Carl's team down there in San Diego. Yeah, the, I uh, read the article. I, I agree. Very good. And I think the link, that's not behind a paywall. No, correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then finally, David, just a little uh, California Exodus story, a, a piece that appears in the San Francisco Chronicle, the aforementioned uh, paper about which I have a limited opinion. Uh, the headline in this piece, though, is it's remarkably generous of the Chronicle mm-hmm. to open its pages to somebody who would talk openly about the California exodus. Uh, it's a, he's a young guy. His name is Kevin Frazier, and he wrote this piece. It was updated, printed yesterday in the Chronicle, uh, January Sunday, January 8th. The headline is, Why People Like Me Left California to Pursue the American Dream in Montana. He was a young guy going to law school at UC Berkeley and had two job offers, he says. One was a big law job at a firm in San Francisco, the other a judicial clerkship on the Montana Supreme Court in Helena, Montana. The firm job offered greater pay, better benefits, more career stability, but for my fiance and me, the choice was easy. We packed up our spot in the Richmond district, got an Interstate 80, and headed for big sky country. Um, so it's a, it's a mostly great story. He's talking about how, you know, he just he runs through the normal catalog of terrible things befalling people in California, and more particularly in San Francisco. He writes, in San Francisco alone, headlines inspire few people and instill little optimism. You can only read about the cost of public toilets or other delayed over-budget transit projects so many times before you wonder if big cities are up to the task of realizing their immense potential. Um, he calls this the the Zoom trail, by the way, like the Oregon Trail. But it's that you know Zoom showed people they could work from almost anywhere, and that's when he and his fiance began discussing living out of state. Um, now, here's what's interesting. Toward the end of the story, he begins to suggest some some fun things that you know every Californian could do, like we all should get more involved in you know helping clean up our streets or whatever. Do you think that the article was um, uh, a pitch for? Leaving the insanity of California, or a pitch for the superiority of a quiet life in the in the um, a more desolate area. In other words, a pitch for non-urban living. Well, I suppose it could be best uh, both, rather. But I I read it primarily as look the push factors out of California. The push factors like yeah. you could live in a Montana like place here in California. You could do that. You could go live in the Sierra foothills. You could go yeah, live right, in right. San Diego, whatever. I mean, uh, the Central Coast is amazing in California. You go north of San Diego; it's beautiful. You know, of Northern California. Uh, myself, I've always loved Weed, California. We've talked about that. But I, I think what he's really saying is, look, man, it's just it's difficult to imagine a life in this place where we can't get stuff done. And so his solutions are range, I think. He does offer solutions like, hey, I'm leaving California, but here's what California could do. And the, the solutions run, they are so classically California that they begin to make me feel sad for Montanans because these are the Californians who bring with them the virus of big government. It's almost like COVID, right? You, you, you carry this thing across state borders and, and then you know Texas suddenly becomes a bluer, a more competitive state for, for Democrats. But he, he suggests on the one hand, just like, hey, we should have service Saturdays and you know that should become the cultural norm where we have days filled with local service projects. You know, very volunteer, that's nice. What if we revive democratic participation by making citizen assemblies a normal part of our political system? This is something that former uh, gubernatorial candidate John Cox proposes, uh, which is that, you know, every assembly seat now represents fewer people under John Cox's model, and it's much more of a kind of neighborhood politics vibe. Um, So these are, you know, kind of, I think, idealistic, uh, well-intentioned, and maybe even reasonable sorts of things, but I don't think our culture is set up for Service Saturday. 
Um, and Service Saturday is meant to replace the things that government ought to be doing largely, like cleaning streets and making sure we don't have crime and that sort of thing maybe. But then he, you know, he also says, how about a modern civilian conservation corps? That's the Roosevelt era labor pro- program that could offer everyone the opportunity to collaboratively build up their cities and hometowns. So it's kind of a range of idealistic voluntarism and, um, and government programs that pay people to go out and do the things the government's supposed to be doing already. Yeah. Um, but that that aside, you know, it's hard to begrudge a young guy with a fiance and a, a deep desire to go live in Montana, the, the opportunity to go do that thing. I have three of my four children have already left California some of the saddest days of my life, helping pack those kids up to leave. So um, I'll put that in the show notes as well, just a little piece on uh, the California exodus. David, anything else you want to talk about before we run off? Covered a lot of ground. I I hope we managed to impact people and what we had to say and do very little uh, that bothered people and offended them. That would be nice. All right, you can always find this podcast on the National Review website, but it would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe. And, of course, rate and review the show wherever you subscribe. That boosts our profile and helps others find us. Please email us with your comments and story suggestions. You'll find our email addresses and other fun details in the show notes. On behalf of my friend and co-host Dave Bonson, we give thanks as ever to our session producers, Lucas Klaus, Brian Tong, and engineer Glenn Hall, researchers Houston Reese, Sheridan Swanson, and Alex Kachatrian, and to all of our friends at National Review, especially podcast producers, Sarah Schutte. Thanks also to Metalachi, the LA-based mariachi metal band for our music. La Revolución continua la semana próxima.